0: And I feel like there's just not enough people that have practically had to deal with data and cybersecurity at scale involved in the policymaking anymore. Um, I'm sure there's some, I'm not not trying to, I know there's really smart, really good people trying to work on these problems. It's not like I have all the answers, but I wanna throw my hat in the ring because I feel like when I hear things like the DOD has a rule now where you can't buy any, you can't sell them any software if there's a CV in it whatsoever. To me, it sounds like whoever wrote that hasn't spent a minute in cybersecurity because there's no such thing as a software without CVE ever.
1: I'm George Comiti, and this is First Watch. Today's guest is Chris Russell, CISO at T-Zero. With a military background in intelligence, a storied career from the vendor side to now blockchain technologies, Chris Russell is a self-described nerd. And his appetite for learning shows no signs of abating, having recently enrolled in a PhD program. I wanted to learn more from this future doctor of cybersecurity, so let's get into it. Chris Russell, welcome to First Watch.
0: Thanks. Uh, very excited to be here. I think we have some uh, interesting things to cover today.
1: I think so too. Why don't we start at the beginning? Uh not with your life story, but let's focus in on the origin story uh in cyber because um it, you have a, a kind of a, a very colorful background and I think a very unique perspective uh on transitioning into cyber leadership.
0: Yeah, sure. Um this is something that I think uh, you know, my origin story has helped me along the way. It's, you know, my my military and intelligence background is Manifested in all sorts of different uh, pluses along the way, but uh, it definitely was kind of the start of it all for me so. Um, yeah originally I was in the army as a human intelligence collector I you know went and learned Arabic at the Defense Language Institute spent about seven years in Iraq, you know from the beginning of the war on and, and was operational and all these other areas and strategic ways too, um, and. All that was a, an interesting job. I really liked it. Uh, in intel you you after a while you find things turn kind of political, and that's that turned to you know not be something I was super interested in. Um but the nature of a lot of things we were doing where we were where I was you know my goal was to get people to get information for me. and a lot of it was turning into uh, people with access to networks, people who get access to networks, people could put things on networks, people could you know plant key loggers, people could you know get us onto what whatever it was um and the facts and and the you know the fact that it was going on so much but even more so the fact that it was never caught and it was just
1: <laughs> right
0: just i mean it was just ridiculous how this insider threat thing that people are supposed to be looking for just worked every single time
1: hmm. um
0: that i it kind of was eye opening for me like this is a this is a real problem like no one you know Nation states themselves aren't stopping this really that well and are detecting it or have any idea. So I mean, this is something going on everywhere. So that was kind of a wake-up call when I was deciding, hey, you know, this Intel thing is not maybe a lifestyle for me long term. Um, but I think there's something in defending these networks because pretty much anyone can walk in and plug in things and start pulling information and no one asks any questions. Yeah. People can install sorts of backdoors and no one really even notices. So that, that was really the origin for me of saying, like, hey, there's something here, and then just you know, being someone around classified information and, you know, we were, you know, there's things about OPSEC and least privilege and need to know Mm -hmm. and, you know, identity access management that just gets drilled into you from Intel's perspective. So I was already pretty aware of a lot of the fundamentals. So it wasn't a huge transition for me, but that that was definitely the start of it all.
1: Yeah. I think for those with the military background, where a lot of physical security checks are already in place, some of it is easier to process. I always, um, like to use the analogy, you know, as complicated and also as fraught as the term zero trust is like, just imagine going to any secure facility. You have to show your badge every time. doesn't matter if you work there for two years and you say, Hey, Bob, Hey, Chris, like you got to show the badge every time. So it's still, there's still that verification process. Um, cool. Well, that is, uh, really interesting. I want to Transition there for like how you took those uh, highly applicable skills and your journey into, I guess, pivoting into leadership roles where, you know, this is the challenge that we hear time and again is you can have all the technical skills in the world. But if you can't kind of manage how you communicate risk to the rest of the business, it, it gets a little trickier in terms of your career growth.
0: Yeah. And that was another thing that um, my my previous work experience really prepared me for a while, because in the Intel world, for every hour of Intel collection collections, two hours of report writing, Oh, no, right. basically, if there's no report, it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So You can be James Bond, you can collect all sorts of great information about things that are going to happen around the world. If you don't write a report that gets into the system and digests it in a way that the right people know, then it's, it's useless. Right. So it's it's very much like that in most of the business world, but also in cybersecurity. Um, you could know what the technical problem is, but if you don't know how to communicate it um, and articulate it in a way into the right people, that's part of the problem why a lot of the problems don't get fixed. I mean, it's I'm not saying it's the whole problem. There's leadership problems mm-hmm. where they don't want to listen, and there's people that don't want to spend the money. So there's, there's multiple sides of that. But I think as security practitioners, we do have to own a part of this where you need to understand and you need to translate, you need to put it in terms that are digestible for non-technical people, but still effective and meaningful. And that's something that not everyone has a skill for, they have to work on it. Um, but it was kind of, you know, like I said, just trained into me. So I was kind of second nature to me.
1: That is an interesting tack. I think most of the CEOs I've talked to tend to come, from a network security side, which is more kind of architecture. But mm-hmm. it's interesting that you say, yeah, I mean, the the whole kit and caboodle with intelligence is I'm paying specialists to go find the thing, but they got to go translate it into action for people who are going to take the action. Like those are separate branches. Yeah. Um, that's interesting.
0: Yeah. I mean, I actually did start off on the network side from a technical perspective. Um, so I still think that's a strong fundamental that most people have to have. And it's and, and being able to, again, gather the information and disseminate it is just something that kind of enhances it. Um, but another area that I think uh, that people can benefit from these outside skills is the information gathering and understanding the situation. That's something that I think um, we rely on tech, the technical piece a lot. We rely on logs. We rely on alerts. We rely on all these things to tell us the story. But there's more of the story and you need to know how to, you know, for lack of a better term, interrogate the situation mm-hmm. and talk to the right people involved and get to the right information and get to the right systems. You kind of have this mentality of like, OK, there's this picture I want to fill of all these details. And if I'm missing pieces, I need to go get those. I can't just start making assumptions until all I have right. all the information. And so from a technical perspective, I, I found my investigations and, and, and my process being, you know, maybe a little bit more thorough because I felt like I needed to, to paint a complete picture from A to Z for me to understand how it worked and for me to come to the right conclusions. And for me to make any recommendations for people, I had to have all that information too. So there, there's a piece of it with that where we get a little bit lazy because some of these tools kind of spit us out things that are, you know, auto, you know, through via automation that right. are supposed to be answers to problems. I still think um, the human piece is the the most valuable piece that, you know, the analyst that can put it all together and make sense of it is really the value.
1: Yeah, and, I mean, and, and, time, time and again, right? It's the, it's the people who make security. Um, yeah. The tools are there to to help get through the information faster, but the the people have to to make it work. Um, so let's uh, let's fast forward. Um, now you are beginning a new chapter, as I'm sure everyone in your network knows. But for the benefit of our listeners, uh, you have recently posted about kickstarting your PhD program. Um, wanted to give you some time and space to kind of explore that in terms of what was your motivation, you know, what's your focus, and uh, and we'll we'll dig in from there. Sure.
0: Um, so I've been doing a fair amount of mentoring, and I think everyone in cybersecurity, um, at least most people I know, feel they're obligated to be bringing up that next, you know, next class of people. Mm-hmm. And, and expanding the the younger people and giving them more opportunities, and because we have a shortage, we need we need the help, and it's up to us to really be able to lift up people who are new, so that they can come in and get get those jobs and and, and progress and whatnot. So teaching is something I've always been interested in, and ultimately, like when I retire, I want to I want to go and just you know do that. But in the meantime, I was thinking about all the times I heard about all these policies, and I look at all the things we have in place between. Data storage requirements, mm-hmm. and PII requirements, but then what happens when we when it's released and it's there's breaches? And I feel like there's just not enough people that have practically had to deal with data and cybersecurity at scale involved in the policymaking anymore. Um, I'm sure there's some. I'm not. I'm not trying to. I know there's really smart, really good people trying to work on these problems. It's not like I have all the answers, but I want to throw my hat in the ring because I feel like when I hear things like the DoD has a rule now where you can't buy any you can't sell them any software if there's a cv in it whatsoever to me it sounds like whoever wrote that hasn't spent a minute in a <laughs> so software without cve ever yes good exist.
1: good good luck procuring the software yeah.
0: and, and that's what you know and, and i feel like that's what you have when you have a bunch of people in the room that have read a lot of books on it and done a lot of papers on it and and it's been stuck in academia, but I've never actually sat down and had to develop software and go through an SDLC or CIC pipeline or any of that, you know. I've seen, yeah, I've seen
1: similar gripes about um, uh, data classification, right? Like basically everything becomes uh, uh, non-CUI or different controls have to be applied. And it's like the lift to do that at scale is so massive you won't you'll spend all your time doing that and <laughs> nothing else yeah
0: some of the costs associated with storing large amounts of data for sometimes seven years and then but also having to be able to to basically produce it at the drop of a hat if someone mm. like finro the SEC wants it these are these are not negligible amounts of money for financial right. institutions and i'm using that as example there's a lot of other ones but that's one where I feel like we need to sit down at a, you know, a regulatory level and say, okay, we had these rules in place for any money laundering and know your customer. We you have to take this information and then you have to keep all these records and you have to do all those things. But we're creating these just massive troves of information on people that is expensive and hard to, to protect. And I'm just wondering, do we still need seven years of transactions like saved to like are we are we really going back seven years and finding money laundering back then? i mean, i I just feel like there's a better way. We need to look at it more holistically, you know,
1: yeah, and I think we saw something similar when like uh, you know the SEC breach reporting requirements came out, which didn't really align with the reality of. It may take me more than 72 hours to have detected the breach. Do I get in trouble if I don't detect it until 30 days later, but I find out it happened on this date? Am I then out of, you know, compliance? You know, it was like a lot of gray area that that's yeah, very yeah. confusing.
0: And, and again, it's a hard problem and and there's a lot of really smart people working on these things, but we need more data from real world experience. And, mm-hmm. and with that data, there's people that maybe interpret it and to put the context around it. And so I'm I'm just I'm hoping I mean no one's invited me to be involved <laughs> yet. I've got a while before I've been done with the PhD, but I feel like this is you know something I want to to be involved in because I feel like you know again one of those people that kind of gets to the root of the problem, the ground truth of an issue, really works through it pretty thoroughly, and and usually comes up with a pretty good solutions. So I'm just hoping that ultimately that's what it leads to.
1: Yeah, and so what is the planned area of of research? Uh,
0: uh, so for my PhD, it's a, it's gonna be around blockchain security specifically, because that's another mm-hmm. one where we're we're you know technology is heading very fast in that direction. We've got all sorts of Web three development, distributed applications, all these things, and I and there are some people that are working on the security piece of it. It's it's not something that's exclusive to me, but I don't feel like there's enough of it. There's, there's mm-hmm. barely enough people to develop, you know, smart contracts as it is. There's very few people that can audit it from a security perspective. Right. And that's just for like solidity. There's, you know, every single coin or blockchain that has a, has a smart contract capability, you know, if no one can audit it and, and show that there's logic flaws or things that can be exploited, you know, how are we going to, to, you know tell people to put any money into these systems with a, with any sort of confidence and yes let's that, not yeah, take it kind of, for
1: granted right
0: <laughs> yeah yeah and and so you know and i work in this world and and i'm i'm a i'll I, I play devil's advocate with with my own space where i feel like blockchain security needs we can't just say private keys and mm-hmm. the protocol is the security that's just not a good answer for me you know i mean you look at Most blockchains are an open source project where they're hosted by a bunch of different people in Mm. different locations. And if this were a legacy system, what we have is an unpatched group of servers talking to each other with no hardening standards, no AV, you know, EPP, EDR on them, no logging, no alerting, no no nothing we'd expect from any other normal organization. But because it's blockchain is distributed, we're like, oh, it's fine. Well, it's just not. These are Linux servers that can be exploited like anything else. Right. So, you know,
1: and we have seen it. We've seen it happen. Right. that whatever whatever the uh, delusion of security of blockchain, not only have we seen it exploited and robbed, we have also seen the ability to track down uh, yeah. stolen payments and pull them back. Yeah. yeah. So,
0: yeah, there, there's just a host of things where I feel like there's a lot of misconceptions and we need to. You know, some security practitioners need to get into that space and say, like, look, we, we need to incorporate some of the basics and foundational pieces of cybersecurity. Not everything, because we have some legacy stuff that is again more problematic than helpful. Um, but we need to we need to insert some standard things in there as as tools to to you know make these systems more secure so people can you know use this as a means of you know moving wealth around in finances. Because because my opinion is we're 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 on the path for a digital dollar right you know like it's just not a matter of if it's just a matter of when and so in order to interact with that the most commerce is going to be some sort of digital you know blockchain type system and we need to be ready for that And we can't develop security after the fact we need that before we can't we can't have an mvp for like the the dollar (laughs) (laughs) we need to have a fully baked we've already been through this a couple times with smaller projects things so
1: and actually we have this opportunity as you point out with uh web 3 which is we have a corpus of experience where we were on the back foot playing catch up and so you know let's not repeat that uh, part of history there's some
0: really exciting things going to web three um there's also some really scary things so it's just we we you know, security practitioners, we're you know, we've got our hands full with the legacy systems. Very few are trying to dip their toe into that as well. Mm-hmm. And some of us have to, you know, some of us have to go and start poking around in there and asking some of the hard questions and you know, getting, you know, I, I would say developers are getting much better at security as a as is part of their job. So there's that's good. You know, it's it's becoming a lot easier for people who who aren't necessarily security practitioners to write secure code and 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 you know, there's tools out there that help them do things that make the actual application more secure from the from beginning. But once I hear there's like no one watching it, there's no one logging it, there's no one responding. I mean, once I hear things like that, I'm like, that's just not gonna work at scale for, yeah. I mean, you, you have to have those things eventually. And they need to be built in sort of early. You can't staple it on after the fact.
1: Yeah. Um, well, we, we put some questions out to the audience and we did get a few back. Um, so Lester Chung asked, um, you know, what are some ways that we could foster closer connections between uh, policymakers and practitioners? Uh, it strikes me that, you know, the White House always has kind of an economic business round table where they invite Tim Cook and, you know, actual business leaders to inform. I know they have like a cybersecurity advisory council, but it doesn't feel like it's advising at the same scale. So I think maybe we start there, but um, did you have any ideas about, about pulling those teams together?
0: Yeah, I think one of the things is we need to stop bringing vendors who sell products to the table on those. And not because they don't have good ideas. It's just because they're, they're already in a biased, a naturally
1: mm-hmm.
0: perfectly justifiable biased state that their way of doing it is the right way of doing it. Because if right. they don't believe that, they, w- they wouldn't be the leader of that company right so um i've seen a bunch of leaders who are are great leaders for the the vendor that they you know they lead they, they've they got a good product they've got a good methodology But that doesn't mean it should be part of policy mm-hmm. <laughs> because there's a couple ways of doing it and so i i feel like when when they bring people in it's very normal you yeah you bring in tim cook you bring in the guy at google you bring in whatever and then for cyber you bring in you know, people from CrowdStrike and Dragos and, you know, Palo Alto Networks and Sophos and Check- and, and uh, Checkpoint and whatever it is, that, that's like the natural kind of way things work. And I don't think those mm-hmm. are the right people at the table. Yeah. Uh, um, they're they're – well, businessmen- Because practitioners
1: are also playing with and working with multiple vendors. You know, there's not like – you're not usually buying top to bottom out yeah. of one shop.
0: I just think for the the policy you know when we're we're starting into policy, we need to you know not be tied to certain technologies or or ways technologies work. for example, there's been a lot that came up with zero trust lately because it was that buzzword, and the government's mm-hmm. really adopted it for a lot of the things and you know i you know I'm not going to argue if that's good or bad, but it, to me, it seems like it was. You know, a lot of people don't understand what zero trust is. They think it's a product. They don't understand it's like a way of using your products. And even when you use a little bit of zero trust on your product, that doesn't make the whole thing zero trust if it's like 10% of how you've deployed it.
1: Right.
0: (laughs) It's not zero trust unless it's across the board zero trust. And that's the part that people kind of miss too. It's like, well, it's also a firewall. Yeah. It's a
1: means and not an end, right? There's no like perfect zero trust state that we all achieve, like a utopia.
0: To think like, I mean, most organizations never really achieve zero trust. I think that the government could achieve it is just kind of like to me, it's again, it's an exercise that's going to cost a lot of money mm-hmm. going to make a lot of, you know, cause a lot of headache. You know, we should, we should get away from things that are that specific as far as like mandates, because they're going to have a hard time deploying that, especially with government programs where they have to be available to the whole country. Mm-hmm. You know, and people even outside the country, the expats, I mean, you can't just lock things down when you're the government. It's like schools. You can't just like close the doors and lock them and don't get in. You, have, you know, it's why they're vulnerable places. So
1: things well, like that's what cost. it comes back to, right? Risk management, not risk yeah. zero, like he, it's just not achievable. Yeah, <laughs> it's, just
0: not, it's just not realistic for, in my opinion, for the U.S. government um, to try and achieve zero trust. I, just, I don't see that as a achievable goal, period. <laughs>
1: Okay, cool. Well, I want to, I'm going to change tack here. Um, A debate that is a perennial one is the need or let me see the perceived need for certifications, right? On one side of the argument, we have, you know, the requirements for certs is kind of holding back people from entering the field or it's artificially raising the cost of entering the field. Uh, On the extreme side, you don't need any certs. Um, But I saw an an interesting point that you raised, where you brought up the fact that, you know, securing systems and building security layers is a different exercise than hacking fundamentally. Um, And then the analogy was one of builders, right? Like we license contractors for a reason so that no Tom, Dick, or Harry can just come off and say, like, yeah, I build houses all the time. And then they <laughs> build a house that collapses on a family. So I want to give you some space there to share that viewpoint because I found that uh interesting and, and different.
0: Yeah. Um that was one because I just kept seeing that analogy that oh they they found these hackers that took over whatever and there's a bunch of 14 year olds with mm-hmm. no degrees and no certs. So why do we need certs and cybersecurity? And, and it's cute and like, you know, I didn't think much about it, but the more I saw it, I'm like, because that's just breaking in the window. You know, if, can those guys actually build an application that's secure? No, because hackers get hacked too. We see that all the right. time. Their C2 nodes get taken over. They're, you know, a bunch of these ransomware groups. They're, you know, they get hacked all the time too. They're not any better at, at building it. And so I'm not someone, I'm definitely not someone who says like we need to have certs as a barrier of entry. Mm-hmm. I think we need skills as a barrier of entry. Skill certs are just one way of proving that. And and what I and 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 where I start to get frustrated is I feel like the argument should be just as long as you can prove your skills, whether it's through interview process or practical application or showing someone or networking, or it's a cert, then that's fine. But a lot of people cr- crying about the cert part are people who are maybe having an issue there and can't really get the certs. And they just really want to get into get into working. Because they see a lot of like, well, I'm like, I'm on, you know, hack the box all the time. And I do all this and, I, and, and I'm doing all these things and I can't get a job. And the problem is they're doing all this red team activity, which is again, needed, but not nearly at the scale of the blue team. I mean, the, the, there is red team jobs out there, but not the scale of the whole blue side. Mm-hmm. And they don't really understand. Those are two different skill sets, and they can complement each other. And you can pivot, and there's all these things. But you can't expect to get a job protecting a network because you were really good in, in hack the box or try hack me or any of these right. sorts of things. Because you know you need to be able to prove you can do something day one so, to help somehow. Can you configure a firewall? Or do you know the basics of Configure Firewall? Or do you know something about endpoint detection response? Do you know anything about OSs or networking? And if you have one of those, then you're a good candidate for the boot team. But, you know, any other, prof- I mean, people who are hairdressers have to get certified. People who are doing right, right. right. theres I mean, this idea that we shouldn't have to do it is a little bit, I would say, you know, we're kind of spoiled in the in the IT world because we mm-hmm. can do their job remote and there's really high salaries and, and we need help and we're trying to bring all these people in. But the bottom line is like, there's all these people in the rest of the country in all walks of life that have to show up in person for their job. They have to stay certified because there's certain protections that people should be afforded if they're going to use their service. And one of them should be your data is not just going to be completely exposed. Right. So we have to have something in place. I don't know what the answer is necessarily. Again, I don't think there is a cert that everyone needs to have It's the skill set but it's definitely a way of showing that you have a skill set and and as a whole we owe it to the people that are, are entrusting us with their data and their you know and their and their their finances and whatever else they're keeping online we owe it to them to be staffing with people who can do the job and we, yeah. we just need to figure out a better way of doing that
1: yeah i wonder if it's also the the problem is you know let's work with hr teams to ensure that CISSP is not the entry point but like I also it also sounds like let's get the skills let's get the entry level in and then we have to allocate budget to afford them the training to get, you know, grow them in the position and eventually get those certs while they're working for you, because then you are getting the value of that expertise, just as we have, you know, huge companies that pay for MBA programs in exchange for, you know, an additional two years, three years of, of work at the company.
0: Yeah, we definitely have to do better as mentors. The problem is, is that there's, you know, the shortage, you know, I already have this people wearing a couple hats mm-hmm. and so and and a lot of people want to do the additional mentorship and want to do the additional on the job training it's just they're they're you know half the time some of these mid to senior level people are already doing so much to keep the actual security program going <laughs> right <and> all <quality laughs> initiatives that they, you know they just don't have the time that they want to do that right and so that that's part of the problem so we need to figure out some way where the people doing the job don't need to be the trainers to give just the entry level people some basic fundamental skills so they can come in and do that, and then and you know, so for example, uh, you know, my I have a Plural site for my team, and I have a couple of tracks. So as soon as you mm-hmm. come in, the first week you're working on onboarding stuff about our technologies to understand that piece, because it's not fair to bring people in to say go go in and figure out. Because that's what I had to do. It's like, no, here's a here's a thing on Kubernetes and how it works. Here's a thing on you know mm-hmm. AWS or GCP or whatever it is, because this is our environment. You do have to give them those things right off the bat. Yeah, but um but there, there there's got to be something and, and i feel like a lot of the schools aren't really technical they're just kind of telling you like the basics of what you should do but not how to do it mm-hmm. we, we need to somehow get these younger people taught how to do some things practically so that we can just immediately put them to work and give them something good to do and, and build off
1: of. yeah i was i was joking with a uh, a professor who teaches uh, in a master's of information technology program. I was like, you have one set of, you have like all your cohorts, they're split up, they're designing, like part of their project is design a network, build the architecture, whatever. I was just joking that he should have one, just assign in secret one of those cohorts to go break into the other team's networks because if you're going to build a network, you should learn how to defend the network. Um, well, I, I don't know if he took me up on that idea, um, but it's it sounds like you have a, a pretty methodical approach, which I think speaks to a lot of your background. And we had another uh, question from a, a cybersecurity leader, Dwayne Gran, asking, um, you know, how do security practitioners? uh, get more objective or scientific about their work? You know, how do we get better at knowing what works and what doesn't? I think we have some frameworks and industry standards, but you know, are, are there measurement principles or, you know, is there anything that you've been doing to try and, you know, make that, uh, that measurement easier for your team?
0: Yeah. So, um, So one thing I like to do is I I like to use metrics and I like, you know, I like data and metrics, but the, but the key is, is that, uh, and a lot of people, this is where they fail because they have metrics, but they're not really Mm -hmm. the right metrics. Some metrics are lagging indicators. So, and, and that's what we're used to reporting on. So at the end of the quarter, I say, hey, we had 10,000 critical this and 8,000 medium this. Those are all lagging indicators that at right. the end of the quarter or year whatever it is I can report on that tells us how good or bad we did. And it really doesn't give me any opportunity to make any improvements in the moment. It just says I missed. Like if my goal was to keep our total vulnerability management or our patching or whatever it is under a certain threshold, and I get to the end of the quarter I missed it. Just because I was just tracking the numbers all along, and those are lagging indicators, it doesn't do you any good. You need to have leading indicators, which is, Mm -hmm. you just don't think, if I do these things, they're going to decrease the amount of vulnerabilities I have over the course of time. So what you need to track is, and what you need to do is figure out what those are. So if I patch every Wednesday... And I'm identifying whatever it is on a weekly basis, as opposed to a monthly scan whatever it is. If I'm doing these things, these are the things that will lead me to success. So at the end of the quarter, my numbers will be good. And that's the mentality we really have to start having yeah. in the security industry. Um, and sometimes it's got to be tied to, to money for the business to understand it. But it's got to be these leading indicators where you sit down and think, if I do these things, these will lead me to the successful numbers I want. Just tracking the number of how much spend you had or how many alerts you've gone through, you're done, You're not under control of that. You just get to report it at the end of the year or quarter, or whatever it is, and it's good or it's bad, and you missed or didn't miss it. But we should be doing is saying, okay, if our goal is to have, you know, to close this many alerts a week, reporting at the end of the week what you did or not is not good enough. You say, what is it that helps us close alerts? Well, we need to be able to research faster in order to research faster we need to have this tool or this you know this process ironed out because we're losing time on it and you work on those things and if you work on all the things that'll that will lead to success the numbers will follow and be where you want eventually
1: yeah i love that i am a huge fan of leading indicators right it's like what is in your control and um you know just reporting you know reporting is the is the rear view mirror, which is relatively small in relation to the windshield, which is what you got to use to control. Yeah. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, the leading stuff, that's the stuff you're looking at every week, every day, whatever. And then the lagging stuff, you can deal with that at the end of the quarter. But anyway,
1: that's good. Well, um, that's all the time we have for today. I know you're a busy man. Uh, Thank you very much for taking the time. I have really appreciated this.
0: Yeah, no problem. This was fun. Thank
1: you. That's it for First Watch today. Many thanks to my guest, Chris Russell. To hear more interviews with leaders and more Spotlight episodes on newcomers in cybersecurity, subscribe to First Watch wherever you get your podcasts. First Watch is a production of Safeguard Cyber with original music by Matthias Saffaletti and production help from Jamil Maffei. Until next time, stay safe, stay strong.